So speaking about uh, membranes, you learned um, during the last lecture that we have these biological membranes that surround the cell, but of course they also compartmentalize the cells into the uh, intracellular organelles. And you also learned that the plasma membrane and the membranes of these different organelles are not the same. They contain unique sets of lipids and also unique sets of proteins. So the membranes of the plasma membrane and of the different organelles are not identical. We talked a little bit about the integral membrane proteins, their structure, their function, but of course not all proteins are localized in the membrane of the organelles or the plasma membrane, but you also find them in the cytosol, in the lumen of the organelles, and even in the intermembrane spaces uh, in those organelles that have two membranes, right, like the mitochondria. And then we also talked in one of the previous lectures about the extracellular matrix proteins. So they are just an example of a group of proteins that you can find in the extracellular space. So proteins also need to be secreted from the cell into the extracellular space. Now a typical mammalian cell has about 10,000 different proteins. And most of these proteins actually are synthesized in the cytosol and they then remain in the cytosol. But about half of these proteins need to be transported to different organelles or to the plasma membrane. Um, for example, the DNA polymerase has to be targeted to the nucleus so it can assist in DNA replication. And this process is the topic of today's lecture. It is called protein targeting or also protein sorting. And essentially what happens is that the cell puts an address label on a protein so it can find its proper destination, its proper target in the cell. You will also hear that errors in this process can lead to uh, severe diseases. I'll give you two examples of such protein targeting diseases. So how does each protein find its uh, final destination? Um, well, there are two general observations. First one is that membrane and organelle proteins contain so-called targeting signals directly in the amino acid sequence, okay? So it's an intrinsic uh, function. It's basically contained within the actual protein. There's a signal sequence that will uh, then be recognized either um, during protein synthesis, so while this translation is still ongoing, or after protein synthesis has completed. Um, and there's a special machinery in the cell <laughs> that actually helps with this process. And this, this machinery um, contains a receptor, okay? Because somehow we need to recognize that signal in the amino acid sequence of a protein. And then this machinery will also help to translocate the protein to its correct location in the cell. Now here are a few examples of such uh, signal sequences for uh, proteins that would localize to the endoplasmatic reticulum, to the mitochondria, and to the nucleus. So in case of the ER proteins, you can see that the signal sequence consists of an, a stretch of amino acids at their end terminus. And basically, this stretch contains a region 
uh, of hydrophobic amino acids shown here. And usually this stretch is also preceded by um, some positively charged amino acids, one or more positively charged amino acids. And then the targeting signal that transports, um, that, uh, that helps uh, proteins localize to mitochondria consists of an alternating pattern of either neutral or hydrophobic amino acids and that alternates with positively charged amino acids. Here you can see arginine, lysine, these are positively charged amino acids. And then finally, you all learned about the nuclear pore complex. So proteins are actually targeted to the nucleus through this pore complex and they contain a characteristic sequence of um, five basic amino acids, as shown here, lysine, 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 arginine, lysine. Now, importantly, in contrast to these N-terminal signal sequences that you find in the ER proteins and the mitochondria, these nuclear localization signals can be uh, anywhere within the amino acid sequence of a protein. And so you can easily imagine that these days you find online prediction programs, so if you study a novel protein, can just put in the primary sequence, the amino acid sequence of the protein, and then an algorithm will actually search for these different targeting signals and can tell you with some probability whether your protein is going to be a nuclear protein, an ER protein, or a protein that's targeted to mitochondria. All right. Um, so here's an overview, and you may be familiar with parts of this slide. And you learned a little bit about the process of uh, about the process that are ongoing in the ER and the Golgi complex in the lectures given by Dr. Kwan. But essentially, uh, you see that everything starts here in the center of the slide. So the translation of proteins uh, initially occurs on free ribosomes in the cytosome. Okay, and um, then after translation is being initiated. Uh, two things can happen, or several things can happen. The proteins can either be fully synthesized in the cytosol, and then they remain in the cytosol, okay, to uh, do whatever they're supposed to do. Um, then we have another class of proteins, which are also synthesized here on these three ribosomes, and I should point out they're completely synthesized as well. So basically they are the whole amino acid sequence is produced. And then they contain a specific targeting sequence, which, as you can see, targets them to the mitochondria, the chloroplasts, peroxisomes, and to the nucleus. All these proteins have specific targeting sequences that ensures that the proteins end up in the right organelle. And um, <clears throat> of course, for the mitochondria and the chloroplasts, is a special situation because you actually have a double membrane, these organelles. So aside from the signal sequence and the general mechanism that exists to target these proteins to the stroma, uh, sorry, to the matrix of the mitochondria and to the stroma of the chloroplast, there need to be additional mechanisms in place which then uh, locate proteins to the intermembrane space or to either of the two membranes. Okay. So, but today in, in this lecture, we'll actually focus on another group of proteins, 
um, namely those that are targeted to the self-surface. Those can be either secreted molecules, such as hormones or the extracellular matrix proteins, um, will, and also the proteins that are targeted uh, to the plasma membrane have to go through this particular pathway. Uh, and we have the proteins that need to stay in the Golgi and those that get targeted to lysosomes. And all these proteins go through, initially go through the same pathway, and that's the so-called secretory pathway. You probably heard about that before. So essentially, um, what you can see here is that uh, translation of the mRNA is initiated in the cytoplasm, but then immediately these ribosomes will actually dock to the membrane of the endoplasmatic reticulum. Here the protein is uh, synthesized and then transported through the ER, through the Golgi complex, and then into uh, whatever location it's supposed to go. So, for example, here we have those proteins that get secreted. Of course, they get secreted by exocytosis at the cellular membrane. Um, then we have proteins that will be targeted to lysosomes, those that will uh, be transported to the plasma membrane, so all the integral membrane proteins of the plasma membrane. Um, yeah, all these have to go through the secretory pathway. Now, here's a more detailed and maybe a little confusing overview of the same thing, of the secretory pathway. Again, you see that protein synthesis occurs on these bound ribosomes. Um, and because the ER membrane here is basically studded with ribosomes, it's also called the rough ER. Okay, so it's basically ribosomes that attach firmly to the ER membrane. And whilst protein synthesis occurs, you can see that the amino acid, uh, the, amino acid the polypeptide is basically translocated across the ER membrane. And that's also called uh, co-translational translocation, or co-translational transport of the proteins into the ER. You can see that these proteins then flow through vesicles into the cis-Golgi, they're transported across the Golgi to the trans-Golgi, and of course some proteins will actually remain in the Golgi, namely those that serve their function in the Golgi apparatus. And then we have other proteins that make it all the way to the trans-Golgi, and here they can do, uh, do two, uh, one of two things. They can either be, uh, they can either go through what's called uh, the constitutive secretion pathway, so this is a process that exists in basically any uh, mammalian cell that you look at, and it's constantly ongoing, where essentially vesicles bud off as transport vesicles from the transgolgi, and they are then translocated to the membrane where proteins can be secreted by exocytosis, or of course if you have an integral membrane protein, such a vesicle, it gets targeted to the plasma membrane and basically gets stuck there, okay? So that's how you bring these integral membrane proteins to the plasma membrane. Uh, you also see that through the same uh, pathway, you bring either uh, transmembrane proteins or luminal proteins to uh, the lysosome. Now there are some specialized cells, such as neurons, uh, where you need to uh, secrete um, uh, proteins or other, uh, yeah, especially proteins, upon demand. So essentially what you have here is what's called regulated secretion. And again, you have proteins that are pro uh, being produced in the ER or at the ER, go through the Golgi, and then are transported in 
these sort of secretory vesicles to the membrane. And they basically congregate near the plasma membrane and they await a signal such as a nerve impulse in order to undergo exocytosis. Okay? So that's important uh, in specialized cells such as neurons. And last but not least, you probably learned already that there's also uh, some retrograde flow here where vesicles actually flow back or make their way back all the way to the ER because some special modifications of the ER proteins may occur in the Golgi stack and then they have to be transported back to the ER to serve their function. All right, so I want to summarize a few key points here. First key point is that all the proteins which are encoded by nuclear DNA are first translated on free cytoplasmic ribosomes. Okay? And I really want to emphasize the word first here because it is at this initial phase of protein synthesis when the decision needs to be made whether the protein uh, will or will not go through the secretory pathway. You will see in a second exactly what I mean by that. So we have the soluble proteins and those proteins that get targeted to the mitochondria, the chloroplasts and the peroxisomes. All of them are uh, completely synthesized first on free ribosomes. You see they have a signal sequence and that will then target them to uh, these organelles. So the whole amino acid sequence is being synthesized here. And then we have the integral membrane proteins secreted proteins that we just talked about and proteins that will reside in the ER, Golgi, and those that are transported to lysosomes. All these are synthesized first on ribosomes that are bound to the ER membrane. Okay? And essentially I also want to point out that the subunits on those free ribosomes and the ER bound ribosomes are exactly the same. Okay? So there's not a special ribosome that will synthesized proteins at ER versus the ones that are in the cytosol. All right, so what happens in the cell when these protein targeting mechanisms don't work? Well, the answer is that people get very sick. And one example for such a disease is uh, eye cell disease. And this disease has been heavily studied by research and has been found that it is caused by a defect in the targeting of proteins that are bound to, uh, that, are, that should be targeted to the lysosome. Um, so in fact, there's actually a protein defect or mutation that causes a protein defect, and this protein would normally add this address label to a lysosomal protein, and as a result, the protein is no longer targeted to the lysosome, but essentially it is now being secreted. Okay. And you can easily imagine how something like that may occur um, because, as you just saw, all these proteins have to go through the secretory pathway. So if at one point there's a certain address label missing on the lysosomal protein, it may just go the default pathway, which is to be secreted from the cell. So um, basically what happens in this disease is that there's a buildup of uh, certain substances also in the lysosome that would usually be degraded and that leads to the formation of so-called inclusion bodies. Okay, and that's where the disease derives its name from. So the I in eye cell disease stands for inclusion or inclusion bodies. Now, 
as a result, these patients will show uh, psychomotor retardation and severe skeletal abnormalities. Um, and the symptoms, as you can see, develop early on. And the average lifespan of the affected individuals is about eight years of age. Um, then there's another disease called Selbanger syndrome. Selbanger syndrome is different from eye cell disease in a way that here the targeting of proteins to the peroxisomes is affected. And what happens is that proteins are no longer targeted to the peroxisomes, but in this case, they end up in the cytosome. So does anyone remember what the function of these peroxisomes is in the cell? Uh, to remove uh, the Yeah, so they remove these type of uh, toxic substances that would build up in the cell normally. Um, they also are involved in lipid biosynthesis. Um, so what you have in this case is that actually a very long uh, chain fatty acids will accumulate uh, in a cell and that has also severe consequences. Um, those patients suffer from uh, neurological abnormalities such as mental retardation and seizures. Um, they also show cardiovascular, renal, and adrenal dystrophies, and also uh, defects in the eye, shown here. And again, it's a very severe disease. Um, most infants actually do not survive the disease uh, for more than 12 weeks, so it's a devastating disease. Okay, so how exactly do these secreted proteins get targeted to the ER membrane? And I really want to break down this process in individual steps. But what I want to point out is that um, there was a series of groundbreaking experiments uh, done over many, many years and uh, that led basically to the uh, identification of the different steps in this pathway. Um, and this was done by uh, uh, researcher Günther Blobel, now at Rockefeller Institute uh, in uh, New York. And he discovered basically how this system works, how the protein sorting system operates. And it was for this work that Günther Blobel won the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine in 1999. So basically, he found through his experiments that there are proteins um, and that they have intrinsic signals that we already talked about, which govern their transport and localization in the cell. So here are some of these early experiments that were done to, to demonstrate um, that secretory proteins contain an N-terminal sequence, N-terminal signal sequence. Okay, I'm gonna stop this here quickly. Let's hope it works better now. Um, so what they did in these experiments, essentially they created a cell-free system. So what does that mean? It means that they provided everything that a cell would need to synthesize protein. So basically they threw into a test tube uh, ribosomes, ATP, GTP, and on top of that they added an mRNA which normally encodes for a protein that goes through the secretory pathway, so a secreted protein. And what you can see is that in this case, these ribosomes will start translating 
the mRNA into protein, as we would expect. You can nicely see how the first sequence that sticks out of the ribosome will be the N-terminal signal sequence, which, as you heard in the beginning of the lecture, every ER protein has. Actually, all the proteins that go through the secretory pathway have this N-terminal signal sequence. And you see we end up with completely synthesized proteins with signal sequences. Now, in the next step, the scientists then added uh, so-called microsomes. What are microsomes? Essentially, these are small vesicles that you obtain if you homogenize a cell. So what happens there is that the ER breaks up into small vesicles, and these vesicles essentially have all the you know, lipids and proteins that a regular ER membrane would have. Now they did basically two experiments here. One in which they might added the microsomes after the protein had been fully synthesized. And you can see that the proteins actually, basically nothing happens to them. Uh, they don't even enter these microsomes, and they keep their signal sequence. And in a second experiment, they now added these microsomes. Again, these are vesicles, just like the ER. And in this case, when they added these microsomes during the process of protein synthesis, you can see how the ribosomes with the mRNA attached to the membrane of these microsomes and the protein is being synthesized and at the same time it translocates into the lumen of these microsomes. So that's pretty exciting. And the other thing they found is that this ER signal sequence is cleaved off in the microsomes. How would they do such a thing? How would they see that it's cleaved off? Any idea? So basically you would have to compare the two experiments, right? The endpoints of the two experiments isolate the proteins, so do a protein extract, and then compare them side by side on something called SDS page or SDL gel electrophoresis, and you would see a difference in size because one protein has a signal sequence, and the other case it would be cleaved off. Do you have any questions on that? Yes? Where do you say the microsomes are from, the ER? Yeah, so essentially it would homogenize cells and then uh, the ER breaks up into pieces, so to say. And rather than the ER being, staying in a tube-like shape, it you know, forms, the, forms vesicles because it's just the energetically most favorable configuration. <clears throat> so this is interesting because in this process here, those proteins did not get translocated into the microsome lumen and therefore they concluded that the same thing would occur in the ER, that in fact in the ER you would have um, basically uh, translocation of the secretory proteins into the ER lumen whilst the protein is still not fully synthesized. Okay? So again, this is co-translational -transla co transport of the protein into the ER lumen. And therefore this process is also referred to as co-translational translocation. So again, we have translation of a secretory mRNA in a cell-free environment. And in this way, you can produce a full-length protein with an intact signal sequence. And if you add microsomes during that process, you actually get efficient translocation of the protein into the lumen, and the signal sequence gets cleaved off. OK, so a few questions arose. Uh, from these experiments. And that's pretty typical for researchers to do an experiment to address a question and they end up with a hundred more questions. All right? 
So that's how we do research. And so the questions that they came up with is, well, how are these growing polypeptides recognized in the first place? How does the cell know that they are secretory proteins? Uh, basically shortly after the synthesis begins. And how do these secreted proteins then get, how do they get transported to the ER membrane? And finally, how does the end terminus of a growing secretory protein then get threaded across the ER membrane? So the first question, we basically can answer that already. Um, these, ER, uh, these ER proteins and all the proteins that go through this secretory pathway have a signal sequence. And here's just another slide that shows you a couple of different examples for three different proteins. So again, these proteins usually contain one or more charged amino acids, and they're highlighted here in red. Okay? And these charged amino acids precede a stretch of hydrophobic amino acids. And you can see that this is consistent in all these three proteins which go through the secretory pathway. I also want to point out this arrow here, and that is actually the side where the signal sequence will be cleaved off. You saw that in the microsomes, the ER signal sequence was cleaved off after the protein had been translocated into the lumen. Um, it has also been shown, uh, again by experiments, that this hydrophobic stretch is really critical for um, the recognition of a protein as a secretory protein. In fact, if you change the, the sequence here and you substitute these hydrophobic amino acids, which let's say polar or, or charged amino acids, then the protein will no longer be recognized as a secretory protein. So what gets the ribosomes with the secretory mRNA, sorry, the secretory protein mRNAs to bind to the ER membranes? And that's an important question. The basic the mechanism, and we'll talk more about that uh, in detail, it involves two special receptor proteins. First one is the so-called signal recognition particle, SRP. And then we have the signal recognition particle receptor. Okay. Now, as you will see in a minute, it's, it's the SRP that will actually bind to the growing ER signal or signal sequence. And then we have the SRP receptor, which sits in the membrane of the ER. So that's how it works. So again, the translation of these secretory mRNAs, or mRNAs that encode for secretory proteins, uh, begins on three ribosomes in the cytosol. But you can see here that immediately after synthesis occurs, it is actually this N-terminal signal sequence that sticks out of the ribosome. And now this sequence can be recognized by the signal recognition particle, SRP. See, it binds both the ribosome and the signal sequence. <clears throat> so again, it's the N-terminal signal that comes out of the ribosome tunnel. And then you have the signal recognition particle, which binds uh, to the emerging signal. So what happens next? Well, nothing. <laughs> As soon as the SRP binds to the ribosome, translation stalls. It's, it's arrested for some short time. Anyone has an idea why it would stop at this point? Yes? Is the ASI blocked? Is the ASI blocked? Um, so, 
yeah, it's kind of detailed, but essentially the, the whole idea behind the process stopping at this point is that you don't want to synthesize the whole protein. Okay? Right, but it's logical. But essentially, if you were to synthesize the whole protein, it might already start folding into 3D configuration, and then it would be really difficult to thread it through the ER membrane. So that's the whole point why there's a stop in protein synthesis. So essentially, as soon as the ER signal sequence comes out, uh, translation is arrested for a short time. Now let me briefly talk about the signal recognition particle itself. You don't need to know the details of this structure here for the exam. But what I would like you to know is that the signal recognition particle is a ribonucleic protein. Difficult word. So it has both RNA molecules and proteins. Okay. Uh, so supposedly the RNA molecule here acts as a scaffold and basically provides stability to the whole uh, complex. And then you see that you have these different protein subunits here, actually six subunits. One of these subunits, and I do want you to notice, know is this P54 subunit here, the blue one. Okay. Now why is the subunit so important? It's important because it actually has a stretch of amino acids, and those are mainly methionine residues. As you all know, methionine is a hydrophobic amino acids. So essentially these hydrophobic side chains of methionine stick out of the subunit and they are called methionine whiskers for that reason. <laughs> uh, and what these methionine whiskers can do, they can actually bind the signal sequence, right? Remember the signal sequence in secretory proteins is hydrophobic as well. So hydrophobic goes well with hydrophobic. So it's these methionine whiskers that recognize and bind to the ER signal sequence. And you will learn later in the lecture that P54 does something else that is also important for this process. So again, the SRP is a ribonucleoprotein. Anybody knows examples for other ribonucleoproteins? Yes? The splicosome. Splicosome, yes. And the ribosomes themselves too. Okay? So these are just a few examples. Um, you don't need to know what's on this slide, but essentially uh, here researchers solved the three-dimensional structure of this complex where actually you can see um, the two subunits of the ribosomes, the 40S, the small subunit, 60S, the large subunit in blue. And then in red you can see basically the structure of this signal recognition particle. So that's the complex that forms immediately after this ER signal sequence comes out of the ribosome. And what do we have here in green? It's a small molecule. It's actually a transfer RNA, okay? Because the whole thing, of course, occurs during protein synthesis. So these structures have been solved by cryo-electron microscopy, a method that allows to visualize proteins, actually large protein complexes, in their native environment, low temperatures. Okay, so as you can see in this example, there's basically a receptor for the signal recognition particle, as I said, that sits in the membrane of the ER. Okay? And in this way, this complex that you just saw on the previous slide can now dock to this receptor. Uh, the receptor itself is a heterodimer. It has an alpha subunit here, and it has a 
beta subunit which spans the membrane. Okay. So it is an intrinsic membrane domain, uh, mem intrinsic membrane protein, the beta subunit. And you can see that it's actually the alpha subunit of this heterodimeric receptor that initiates the binding of the SRP particle. Okay. So what happens next? Well, you can see that right after binding, both molecules um, actually have bound TTP. And when they bind to each other, and I will go and talk about that in more detail in just a second, they both have TTPase functions. And TTP hydrolysis then occurs. And that actually will lead to uh, the dissociation, again, of the signal recognition particle from uh, the SRP receptor. And something else occurs. You can see how this ribosome now firmly attaches to a protein which is called a translocon. So essentially what this translocon does, does it acts as a pore or channel that can open or close. And you can see how now the signal sequence of the uh, secretory protein uh, gets translocated or inserts first into the translocon, and the gate opens. You can also see uh, that the orientation that the signal sequence inserts um, has the end terminus of the protein facing the cytosol. Here's the cytosol, here's the ER lumen. All right, the next step then is that uh, the signal sequence is cleaved off. Remember, in the microsomes, in the microsome experiments, you could actually see that these uh, signal sequences are cleaved off. And that uh, action is performed by this uh, signal peptidase, which resides also in the membrane of the ER. And finally, of course, the protein is fully synthesized and then can extrude into the ER lumen. And final step, the ribosome is now released from the membrane once protein synthesis is completed. And you see the translocon closes, and the protein can now fold into, into its final uh, 3D structure. OK. So researchers have done different experiments to actually figure out this whole process. And uh, the first observation they've made was actually done in experiments with yeast. Um, they identified a mutation in the yeast gene which encodes for the protein called SEC61, SEC61. Okay? And what they found is that this particular mutation would actually block the translocation of secretory proteins into the lumen of the ER. So that showed for the first time that this SEC61 protein is involved in the translocation process. Now, another experiment that was done is actually shown on this slide here. It's a little more, uh, more interesting experiment, actually. Uh, here in this experiment, researchers again used this microsomal system. Remember, it's a cell-free environment, ATP, GTP, ribosomes. And again, uh, they added microsomes, right, which are these small vesicles of ER. Um, and what happens is that in addition to all these uh, components that are needed for protein synthesis, they added, again, an artificial mRNA that encodes for secretory protein. 
But in this case, what they did is they actually deleted the stop colon in this MRNA. And what happens in this case is actually that after complete synthesis, the polypeptide cannot detach from the mRNA and from the ribosome. So it's essentially stuck there. Okay. And so in the next step, researchers used uh, cross-linking reagents. Cross-linking reagents usually can cross-link proteins, for example, lysines of different proteins. And essentially what this does is the chemical reagent will cross-link um, proteins and will also cross-link basically the polypeptide chain to whatever is close to the polypeptide chain. And you can then analyze which proteins are associated with the polypeptide chain. And that's how they also found that this SEC61 protein was closely associated with the growing polypeptide during exactly this process. Okay. So essentially, these cross-linking experiments demonstrated that the translocating polypeptide chain comes into close contact with SEC61. So this result finally confirmed that SEC61 is indeed the translocon. Now, what controls the insertion of these secretory proteins into the translocon? Um, well, there's actually a particular checkpoint uh, during this process. And that is that occurs at the very first step and I need to go a little bit into the detail of the functions of these different proteins that play a role in this process. So importantly, again, both the SRP and the SRP receptors you saw on the previous slides, they can both bind to GTPA. And it is the P54 subunit of the signal recognition part of the SRP, which has this GTPA's activity. Okay. Uh, remember, P54 is the same subunit that had these methionic whiskers as well. So it's a very important subunit in this um, complex. Now, in addition to that, the alpha subunit of the receptor also has GTPase activity. Okay? And I should say to some degree. Now, when both proteins bind GTP, that will actually induce a conformational change, which is required for the tight docking of this whole ribosome, mRNA, SRP complex to the membrane through the SRP receptor. Okay, so you see that this is a very critical step because GTP uh, binding leads to firm docking and then GTP hydrolysis actually initiates the transport of the protein into the ER. The hydrolysis of GTP powers several things actually in this process, so it's really a critical step. Uh, you can see that after GTP hydrolysis, you have the dissociation, of course, of the SRP uh, particle from the SRP receptor. Um, you have the opening of the translocon gate, and you also have the transfer of the um, signal sequence of the secretory protein into the translocal port. <coughs> All that is driven by GTP hydrolysis. Um, here's another slide, and essentially there's a lot more detail about this in the corresponding book chapter, but essentially both, as I said, SRP and the signal recognition particle receptor, uh, they have uh, some intrinsic GTP binding activity and also GTPase activity. 
Um, however, only the docking of the two proteins to each other basically forms an interface that has a fully, a two fully active sites for these GTP proteins, and that leads then to GTP hydrolysis. Okay. So in summary, GTP hydrolysis triggers the unidirectional targeting of the ribosome cargo binding to this translocation pore. Do you have any questions on that? All right. All right, so there's another step that is GTP dependent. And that actually helps to power the translocation of the protein of this polypeptide through the translocal pore. And you already know this uh, step from previous lectures. And essentially, this process is peptide bond formation. You all learned that uh, for the ribosome to be able to translocate uh, through the process of protein synthesis, basically need the hydrolysis of GTP. Okay? So usually, the ribosome can move along the mRNA, and that's driven by GTP. Now, if you think about the process that we just talked about, um, in this process, the ribosome becomes tightly bound to the translocal. So the ribosome can't move. What can move is the mRNA, and now GTP hydrolysis through uh, where usually ribosome translocation would occur, it actually pushes the polypeptide through this translocal. Okay, so GTP hydrolysis that's involved in peptide bond formation uh, drives the translocation of the polypeptide sequence through the translocal pore. All right. Um, so now I'm going to switch gears. I'm going to talk a little bit about how the intrinsic membrane proteins get inserted into the ER membrane. Uh, we heard a lot about the uh, 3D structure uh, of these proteins in one of the previous lectures. And of course, it's not only the proteins that get secreted from the cell that have to go through the secretory pathway, but I want to emphasize again that also those proteins, um, all the proteins actually that become inserted into the plasma membrane and into the membranes of the lysosome, for example, they have to go through the same secretory pathway. So how does that happen? Um, in order to understand this better, we first have to take a look at the different classes of trans transmembrane proteins that there are. And here you see these very complex slides. But essentially, researchers have grouped them into different classes according to their topology. So what does topology mean? Any ideas? What's the topology of a membrane protein? Uh, well, essentially, it means something similar to the 3D structure. But the topology is basically of such a transmembrane protein is defined by uh, the number of these transmembrane segments that they have and the orientation that they take on in the membrane. Okay? So as you can imagine, a protein like this can be oriented in different ways because in most proteins, the extracellular domain and the intracellular domain or cytosolic domain won't be identical, right? They, they will be different. So proteins are generally asymmetrically localized in membranes. So here on the left side, we have a group of proteins called the type 1 intrinsic proteins. And you see that they have a, um, basically a signal sequence. 
just like the secretory proteins we talked about. And also the signal sequence will be cleaved off, just the very same way. Um, they have one so-called topogenic sequence or transmembrane sequence. Um, and I want to point out that their N-terminus faces the ER or Golgi lumen. Okay? And you may remember the example of glycophorin, and that's such a type 1 uh, transmembrane protein. Again, I want to point out that there's a symmetry. You see there's a short carboxy C-terminus here, and then a longer N-terminal domain that faces the lumen. Now remember that we also talked about in the previous lecture how um, basically the luminal surface of organelles that have a single membrane is pretty much equivalent with the leaflet of the plasma membrane that faces the extracellular portion. Okay? That's very important because whatever occurs in the lumen of the ER, for example, if you have any kind of modifications here in the lumen of the ER, such as disulfide bonds, and we'll talk about that more in just a minute, those modifications, you will be able to find them on the extracellular domain of the transmembrane domain protein that sits in the plasma membrane. Okay? So essentially, the molecule is flipped when it's transported to the plasma membrane. Now, in contrast, you can see that the type 2 proteins, they do not contain the typical uh, ER signal sequence. Okay. And we'll talk about that, how, we'll talk about how these proteins actually are targeted to the ER in just a second. And they also have the opposite orientation. So here you have the C-terminus, which faces the lumen of the ER. Okay. And then we have the type 3s, and basic, they're basically the same as the type 2s, but inverted. So both these type 2, type 3, in contrast to the type 1, they don't have such a sigma sequence. And then we just have two different orientations here. And then we have a large group of so-called multi-pass proteins. Okay? You heard about many of these proteins in previous lectures. You certainly have come across the G protein coupled receptors with the typical 7 alpha helical uh, uh, transmembrane domains. Uh, and funny enough, you see that SEC61, the translocon pore, is also, also falls into this uh, group of proteins, multi-pass proteins. Okay, I just want to point out that you don't need to memorize all the names of these proteins down here. It's really about the concepts. You should know what a type 1 and what a type 2 protein is and what you know, makes a difference between them. So again, how do these transmembrane proteins become inserted into the ER membrane? Um, well, as I just mentioned, all the type 1 proteins have, actually have uh, such an ER signal sequence. So what happens here is that just like for the secretory proteins, the, there's co-translational um, translocation of the protein through the translocal pore. Then the signal sequence is cleaved off by the signal peptidase. And the protein synthesis then continues. You see how the polypeptide is extruded through the translocal pore until it hits a stretch of hydrophobic amino acids. So these proteins, in addition to having such a signal sequence, they now have a stretch of hydrophobic amino acids that 
is called a stop transfer anchor sequence. It's a strange name. It's called stop transfer anchor sequence because as soon as this sequence reaches the translocon, the transfer across the membrane will stop, the translocon will open, and you can see that this uh, hydrophobic stretch uh, basically now becomes uh, a transmembrane segment uh, in this uh, polypeptide chain. Okay? And then protein synthesis will continue until the whole protein is uh, synthesized and the ribosome will detach. So this process is very similar to the one we just talked about. Now, unlike the type 1 proteins, the type 2 and also the type 3 proteins do not contain an N-terminal signal sequence. So here things work slightly differently. Um, so since there's no ER signal sequence, they actually have an internal so-called signal anchor sequence. All right. This is also a hydrophobic sequence. And by the way, I will only talk about the type 2s here, but the type 3s work pretty much the same. Um, so what happens is that you have this hydrophobic sequence, which is recognized by the signal recognition particle. And that is then transferred to the translocal pore. And now, as you can imagine, this stretch can actually adopt a one of two different orientations. And depending on how this signal anchor sequence becomes oriented in the translocon, you'll get either a type 2 or type 3 protein. And then what follows is that this um, pore, the translocon, will open up and the sequence is released into the lipid bilayer. And basically that anchors this type 2 protein. You can see that then the remaining polypeptide is synthesized. And in this case, since um, this uh, signal anchor sequence adopted an orientation with the N-terminus sticking out, you generate this type 2 uh, type of protein, okay? With the N-terminus facing the cytosol. So let me ask you this question. If this protein was to be transported to the plasma membrane, which part would you find in the extracellular domain? C-terminus. Yeah, as I said, all these intrinsic membrane proteins are essentially flipped when they're transported to the plasma membrane. Now, how exactly, yes? Is that just for plasma membrane or for all membranes if it goes to like the uh, proxosome membrane or something? Um, so for the lysosomes, it will actually remain the same, yeah. That's right, yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Just making sure. Okay. So the mechanism exactly how, uh, the mechanisms that determine how this signal anchor sequence becomes oriented to translocal are still not completely resolved. So just want to point that out. Um, but again, this particular orientation will determine whether the protein will become a type 2 or a type 3 protein, right? They're just inverted in their orientation.
Okay, so now it gets a little complicated. We're going to talk about the same process uh, for the uh, multi-pass transmembrane proteins. So how do they get inserted into the ER membrane to begin with? First of all, what directs the protein to the ER? How do they get, how do they get anchored uh, in the membrane? Um, and then what stops the transfer of the proteins through the membrane? How do they get inserted into the membrane of the ER? So essentially, uh, in this slide, you will see that the integration of these multipass proteins follows pretty much what you saw for uh, the previous examples, okay? Now here in this slide, you can see an example of such a multipass protein. I want to first highlight the right side here. And in fact, these multipass proteins can be categorized into two groups very simply, depending on whether the N-terminus faces the cytosol or whether um, they are inverted, okay? And again, there are many different examples of such um, uh, multi-pass uh, membrane proteins. So how do they become inserted into the uh, membrane? So what happens is that they have a hydrophobic stretch, or the amino acid sequence has a hydrophobic stretch. So again, it's an internal sequence. There's no ER signal sequence that gets cleaved off. And you can see that this hydrophobic stretch is recognized by the signal recognition particle and then becomes inserted into the translocon. So it basically behaves like a signal anchor sequence, um, just like what you've seen for the type 2 proteins before. And then essentially what happens is that the ribosome will keep synthesizing the polypeptide and eventually another one of these uh, topogenic sequences or hydrophobic stretches will hit the translocon and the sequence will get stuck here. So that's why it behaves like a stop transfer anchor sequence. Now the translocon will open up. And you see how both segments become inserted into the ER membrane. Now you repeat this process multiple times and that's actually how you finally assemble the whole um, structure in the ER membrane until all the hydrophobic sequences are embedded in the membrane. Do you have any questions on this? It's really a slide that you have to look at carefully and you know go through it step by step. Yes? Um, basically gets no it gets funneled into the translocon. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Like an odd number, like seven for the C terms, the N terms have on different sides. I'm sorry. So say ah. like an odd number of transmembrane domains, like the mm -hmm. G like G group couple receptors. Does the N terms and C terms end up end up on different sides? Yes, okay. that's correct. And really it's just the order you know, at which these uh, hydrophobic stretches occur in the amino acid sequence that will determine whether they're going to act as a signal anchor sequence or as a stop transfer anchor sequence. All right, now, as I said, there are many different types of modifications that can occur in the ER lumen. So in the last lecture, you actually learned about such a modification already, but I just want to quickly repeat it. 
um, you learned that some of these uh, cell surface proteins are anchored to the membrane, not by actually inserting into the membrane, but there are many peripheral membrane proteins, okay? You learned about modifications such as uh, palmitoylation, prenylation, all these things, uh, and there was also a modification that's called a GPI anchor, okay? Um, and these GPI anchor proteins, they're essentially first synthesized just like a regular type 1 protein. Okay? Remember the type 1 proteins are those that actually have a signal sequence. All right? So signal sequence will allow them to be funneled through the translocome and then the signal sequence uh, is cleaved off. And then they have this topogenic sequence here which inserts into the membrane. Now for these GPI anchor proteins, that's not the entire story, it's not the whole story, but essentially they are um, then modified by what's called the GPI transaminase. That's an enzyme, and what this enzyme does, it actually recognizes a region here in the protein close to the lipid bilayer, and it then basically transfers the entire uh, N-terminal domain of the protein, which sits here in the ER lumen, onto this preformed GPI anchor. And of course, we'll talk about the molecular composition of the anchor itself in just a minute. So what you end up with is basically the N-terminal domain here attached to this GPI anchor. Now you may say, well, wh why do we need this, right? Why do we need to make things more complicated? <laughs> uh, essentially, many proteins that are integral membrane proteins, they will become firmly attached to the cytoskeleton inside the cell. And such a GPI anchor will actually allow the membrane to pretty much flow, uh, um, will allow the protein to pretty much flow along the membrane, okay? Because, of course, such an element is motile. It can basically move through uh, the lipid bilayer very quickly. And many of these GPI linked proteins will eventually become uh, clustered in special subdomains of the membrane that have certain signaling functions. So just to remind you, here's a different uh, cartoon of what you've seen in one of the last lectures. Such a GPI anchor is essentially a modified phosphatidyl inositol. What's a phosphatidyl inositol? Any ideas? Yes. It is that, and the class of molecules is it's basically a phosphoglyceride, right? We talked about those. Um, so we have these uh, fatty acid chains, and you see that they then are connected by a phosphodiester bond to inositol. Okay, so that's the basic scaffold here. It's actually phosphoglyceride. We talked about right fatty acids being connected <coughs> to these um, polar head groups. All right. And that's actually indicated down here. This, this molecule, this GPI anchor, has this hydrophobic region, and it has a polar region as well. And the hydrophobic region consists of these fatty acid chains. And then you see that we have basically this part here. That's the phosphoglyceride, the phosphodiluinositol, up to here. And then we have a couple of other sugars uh, that link to what's called phosphoethanolamine. I will not ask you in detail what the structure looks like. Um, but you should know that essentially uh, we have phosphodiinositol as a basic component 
of this GPI anchor, you should also know that because of these sugar modifications, it is essentially a glycolipid. And you should know that it's an amphipathic molecule. What does that mean? It basically has a polar and a hydrophobic stretch. Okay? And that's important because it's going to be these fatty acid chains that insert this molecule into the lipid bilayer. And then, as you saw on the previous slide, it's the polar region here, right, that connects to. Uh, this protein and then forms a GPI-linked protein. So again, these GPI anchors really allow proteins to be targeted to specific subdomains in the plasma membrane, for example. All right. Now, there's multiple modifications that occur in the ER lumen. So basically, again, we have the uh, synthesis of the proteins, the funneling of the protein through the translocon, and now the proteins are usually heavily modified in the ER loop. And there are five um, different modifications, and they are shown on this slide. Essentially, you have the formation of disulfide bonds. It's probably the easiest one because you already learned about it. Um, of course, the proteins need to be properly folding, folded. So you have chaperones, which are proteins which assist in this folding process. And then we have this very complicated process of glycosylation. Right? You add basically sugars to the proteins. Um, and also specific proteolytic cleavage of the proteins can occur. So sometimes proteins are synthesized as precursors. But in order for them to become active, they actually need to be cleaved. And in this way, you can also, let's say, make two proteins out of one. Um, and the other thing that happens also in the ER is that proteins can sample into, from monomers into multimers. Okay, and I'm going to talk quickly about each of these different uh, steps here. All right. So actually, another question, why do cells modify their proteins in the ER? Um, essentially, as I said, it can activate a protein. It can lead to increased structural stability of a protein. Um, or it also, if you think of the number of proteins, right? I said 10,000 proteins in a cell. Well, if you modify a protein, essentially, you don't change the basic structure of it, but you add a small modification, and all of a sudden, it gets a new function. So it increases the repertoire. Of, uh, that the cell has of these proteins. Okay, in one of the previous lectures, uh, you may have already learned that these intermolecular disulfide bonds uh, are formed uh, in the lumen of the ER, and they are formed between cysteine residues. Remember cysteines? Cysteine is this amino acid which has this uh, file group in its side chain. Okay, so you can form disulfide bonds between two uh, different systems, cysteines. And this process, and I want to point that out again, occurs only in the lumen of the ER. So if you look at an intrinsic membrane protein in the plasma membrane, where would you find these disulfate modifications? If they occur in the lumen of the ER. 
Exactly. So only in the extracellular domain. You don't find proteins with disulfide bonds, for example, in the cytosol, right? Because those don't go through the secretory pathway. And then only those proteins that, um, for example, the lysosome, uh, that are in the lumen of the lysosome will have these disulfide bonds. Or as for the integral membrane proteins in the lysosome, you would find these modifications, again, in the uh, luminal part of the transmembrane protein. Now, the enzyme that catalyzed this reaction is shown here. It's called protein disulfide isomerase. You've probably heard that many times before. And this protein disulfide isomerase can do uh, one or two of two things, or both. It can either form, newly form, uh, disulfide bonds in proteins, again, between two cysteines, or it can help to rearrange disulfide bonds. Now, you may wonder, why do we need to rearrange disulfide bonds? Well, you just learned that um, these secretory proteins are essentially funneled through the translocal. And then these disulfide bonds are generated in the lumen of the ER. Now you can imagine that a protein has several cysteines. The first two cysteines that come through the translocon essentially can form a disulfide bond. Okay? But that may not be what you want in this particular protein. You may want to form a disulfide bond between cysteine 1 and cysteine 5. So therefore, protein often forms aberrantly placed disulfide bonds and you have to rearrange them. And this is what uh, PDI can do. Okay? Now, PDI itself actually has a, such a disulfide bond, and to make it simple, it essentially can transfer this disulfide bond onto a substrate protein. Now, we'll, we'll leave it with that. We don't go into the mechanism here. Now, this process, as I said, occurs while the polypeptide is still growing on the ribosome. So again, we can have the novo formation of disulfide bonds in the cell, and sometimes they are wrongly formed between different cysteines, and they need to be fixed and rearranged. All right, most proteins that go through the ER are also modified by the addition of carbohydrates. In fact, most proteins are initially uh, modified, or I should say <coughs> glycosylated, by a core oligosaccharide that becomes linked to an asparagine residue in the protein. This is a very important process. Okay? Glycosylations are really important modifications in proteins. So glycosylation occurs in the ER as well. So again, there is a core oligosaccharide. As you know, oligosaccharide is basically a, a, tree, a sugar tree, or many right, sugars attached to each other. And they become assembled first and then they become linked to an asparagine residue in the protein. This is called N-linked glycosylation. N-linked, or N, because of the asparagine. Okay? N is the single letter code for asparagine. And by the way, I want to point out there's also a thing called O-linked glycosylation, where a protein is transferred onto uh, serine or threonine in uh, the amino acid sequence, but these end-linked glycosylations are a lot more common, and usually the modifications are a lot bigger. So larger sugar uh, oligosaccharides are attached. Okay, now this is shown here again. We have basically a protein here, and then we have this 
sequence, which is abbreviated over here, which is asparagin X, where X stands for any amino acid, and then serinophrenin. Okay? So you can see how this oligosaccharide uh, precursor, I should say, becomes attached to uh, asparagine or to the asparagine side chain in this particular motif in the protein. That's how you glycosylate proteins by an N-linked glycosylation. So what is this oligosaccharide here? Well, essentially you have multiple sugars here. We have two N-acetylcocosamine, we have uh, 4569, no, eight, I can't count anymore, mannose residues, and then we have three glucose residues. Okay? Now first, it looks complicated, it's not all that complicated. I want to show you how this precursor is assembled. Okay? It's actually not assembled on the protein directly, but it's preformed as a sugar tree and then it's transferred onto the protein. And that's what's summarized in this complicated se sentence here. The core oligosaccharide used for ending glycosylation is assembled on the polyisoprenoid lipid polycholpyrophosphate. It's a horrible sentence. But essentially, we have a lipid that sits in the membrane. And now we first assemble the sugar tree on that lipid. And then there will be an enzyme that transfers the whole tree onto the protein, onto the asparagine. Okay? And I will show you that on this slide here. <clears throat> OK, so here we have the individual steps uh, that lead to the final formation, which is shown here at the very right side of this oligosaccharide precursor that you just saw on the previous slide, right? Here we have the N-acetylgalactosamine, mannose, and glucose, symbolized by these different colors. All right. So what happens is that the initial uh, small precursor here is assembled on this dolichol uh, pyrophosphate molecule. Here, actually, we have the pyrophosphate. It's just phosphate here. So in the first step, you basically have N-acetylglucosamine bound to UDP. Now, UDP is basically an energy carrier. It's a nucleotide. So the, the sugars are basically delivered from the cytosol in a high energy configuration. They're bound to UDP. And then they become attached to this dolichophosphate molecule um, in small steps. So first, we have the N-acetylglucosamine. And then we have. Uh, basically the mannose, which is brought in from the cytosol attached to GDP. Again, there's, uh, that probably should be GMP here. <laughs> That's a mistake, I would say. And then uh, we basically have this pre-assembled um, oligosaccharide on the dolichol pyrophosphate. Now, importantly, I want to point out that the first, very first step of this N-link glycosylation can be blocked by a reaction called tunicamycin. So if you add tunicamycin to cells in a petri dish, you block all N-linked glycosylations because you hit the very first step of this process. So as a next step, this dolichol um, sugar intermediate is basically now flipped to the luminal side of the ER. Okay, so it gets flipped by a flippase from one side to the other. And now, since these nucleotide sugars 
are synthesized in the cytosol, we have to find a way to actually bring them across the membrane. So what happens is that now we have individual nucleotide sugars, namely these mannose residues here bound to GDP, which are added step by step, uh, one at a time I should say, to uh, this dolical phosphate molecule, right? And they're flipped. And that happens how many times? Four times? Until we end up with this whole uh, precursor. Okay? So now we have assembled this mannose tree on top of the N-acetylglucosamine tree. And now in the final step here, we add three more glucose in just the same way. All right? And we end up with this completed precursor molecule attached still to this carrier molecule, which is the dolichol pyrophosphate. And I want to point out that it's important that at one point we flip this molecule to the luminal side because all these glycosylations of proteins occur in the lumen of the ER. Okay, and this process actually occurs uh, during protein translocation uh, via the membrane, oh sorry, <laughs> the glycosylation and the transfer of this pre-assembled sugar tree actually occurs while the protein is translocated through the translocon and this is catalyzed by an enzyme called simply oligosaccharide transferase. Okay, now we transfer that sugar tree onto a protein, we attach it to this asparagine residue in the sequence. Now, what happens is that Essentially, we have the dolichol pyrophosphate, the sugar tree. And you see now we have this oligosaccharide transferase, which transfers the whole sugar tree onto the nascent polypeptide here, to an asparagine residue. Okay? And after that, there's a strange process happening here. Now, we actually have the removal of some of the glucose, actually all of the glucose uh, residues here and also one of the mannose residues. So it's called glucose and mannose trimming. Um, and that leads to the final structure of uh, this N-linked uh, glycosylation of this oligosaccharide that's attached to the polypeptide. And at this point, it's basically ready to be transported to the cis-Golgi. Now I want to quickly point out this step here. And you see that this step is actually reversible, right? And so essentially, you can come from here back to here. And you see the only difference between these two trees is this single glucose residue. So it's basically a monoglucosylated uh, protein here. And I will come back to that in just a second. But before I do that, I want to tell you what these glycosylations are necessary for or required for. They help with the folding of the proteins. They can also stabilize the proteins. Um, as you learn, they play a role in cell adhesion. You've learned in one of the previous lectures that we have these interactions between selectins and glycosylated proteins. Um, and they also play an important role in the determination of your blood group. You learned about the, the glycosylated antigens that you can find on the surface of the red blood cells. Okay? So that's where these glycosylations also play a very important role. Okay. Now, correct folding of newly made proteins is actually facilitated by uh, chaperones that can bind to these oligosaccharides. And there are two, uh, in particular, two such molecules that I want to uh, mention here. Those are calnexin and calreticulin. 
And these are calcium-binding proteins that can bind to glucosylated oligosaccharides of incompleted folded proteins. Okay. Now, what does this glucosylated mean? Well, if I flip two slides back, essentially this here is a glucosylated protein. So you see it has one glucose residue attached to it. Now, the cell has a checkpoint here at this step. And you can recognize uh, proteins that are improperly folded because they still have this single glucose residue attached to them. They recognize them, and then they will, these proteins will be bound by these, uh, uh, by these proteins connecting the reticulum, and they can then help to promote the association with uh, the PDI, the protein disulfide isomerase, because they, these scrambled proteins may actually have wrongly formed disulfide bridges, and they can help to rearrange them. Or they can actually uh, prevent incompletely folded proteins from aggregating with each other before uh, disulfide bond formation and folding occurs. Okay? Because you can imagine that proteins many times will have certain hydrophobic stretches. For example, those globular proteins that will become secreted out of the cell. And of course, when they come through the translocon, you will have certain hydrophobic parts that are exposed to the cytosol. What might happen is that these parts will kind of aggregate with one another, and that would make the protein uh, fold into its wrong uh, tertiary structure. So these proteins can prevent this uh, aggregation uh, before basically the, the protein gets finally connected by the sulfide bonds. So all this is summarized in this final slide here. Essentially, you have um, different chaperones, BIP. You may have heard about BIP before. Calnexin, calreticulin, which can um, promote the proper folding of uh, the polypeptide chain whilst different uh, disulfide bonds are being formed. So what happens here is that BIP uh, can bind to the polypeptide chain and basically can keep it apart and can also shield different hydrophobic segments from becoming aggregated with one another. And then you have, on the other hand, calnexin here, which, and you can hardly make that out, which can bind these monoclucosylated, or recognize wrongly folded proteins by these monoclucosylated uh, oligosaccharides, right? And then they can recruit proteins like PDI to allow proper formation of disulfide bonds. Now, the last modification that occurs in the ER, which we haven't really talked about yet, uh, is that proteins will assemble uh, into oligomers. I mean, some proteins will assemble into oligomers. So you can see here is an example for HA, which is hemagglutinin, um, which basically forms a monomer. But then in the ER, you can have several uh, of such monomers uh, basically associated with each other into an HA trimer. So oligomerization is also a process, or you could say a modification, that occurs in the ER. All right, and that concludes the lecture for today. Um, please uh, log in on Wednesday again. The office hour is 3 to 4 PM. So either log in, or you can also come to the office at Nelson, and we can discuss any questions that you might have.